Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst with the Cato's um, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and I'm the editor of humanprogress.org. Uh, today, I'm delighted to welcome back to Cato uh, one of Britain's finest science writers, Matt Ridley. Uh, Matt is a graduate of uh, Oxford University. He's worked for The Economist uh, as the science editor and later as Washington uh, correspondent and American editor uh, before becoming a self-employed uh, writer and businessman. He has founded the uh, uh, Mind and Matter a column in the Wall Street Journal and uh, has been a weekly columnist for The Telegraph and The Times, The Times of London, I should say. He sits in the House of Lords as, uh, as a conservative and is a member of the Science and Technology Select Committee. He's won a number of prestigious prizes, uh, including the uh, Hayek Prize, the Julian Simon Award, and the Free Enterprise uh, Award. His best-selling books include The Red Queen, in which he argued that evolution consists of arms races in which you run uh, simply to stay in the same place, uh, in The Origins of Virtue, he noted uh, that cooperation and virtue are just as deeply rooted in human nature as selfishness. Uh, Matt's other books include The Genome, uh, Nature, Nature uh, Via Nurture, and Francis Crick. Uh, yet Matt is probably best known uh, for his uh, best-selling um, book, The Rational Optimist, in which he argued that human living standards will continue to increase uh, thanks to exchange or ideas having sex. Uh, today, Matt will speak about his latest book, The Evolution of Everything, in which he argues that human society changes more, um, human society changes more by evolutionary means rather than command and control. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Ridley. Thank you, Marion, very much indeed for that kind introduction. And I would just like to pay tribute to what Marion does in, in uh, humanprogress.org and, and uh, the, the work there. And it's wonderful to see the, 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 uh, the visualization of human progress that is coming out from that, that project. Um, and of course, it was what I chronicled in The Rational Optimist, uh, uh, that the most extraordinary improvements in, in human living standards in the last 50 years or so. Uh, as I like to put it, we've trebled our income, uh, hit reduced child mortality by two-thirds, increased lifespan by a third uh, in, in my lifetime, and it wasn't all my doing. Um, uh, uh, and it's, um, it takes a lot of explaining. We should get our minds around why that happened, why it happened in this generation, why, why it's possible for it to happen to human beings at all and not to rabbits and rocks. Uh, and... Um, of course, the answer is innovation. Uh, but then the question becomes, where does innovation come from? Uh, and that's sort of what this book takes further. It explores the idea. Uh, and what I've done is, is uh, drill down into the idea that innovation comes from combination and recombination of existing ideas. That's a very similar process to the combination and recombination of genes, uh, which produces the raw material for biological evolution, uh, but in biological evolution, you then have a process of selection uh, where the environment selects some of the combinations over some of the other combinations. And is that happening in human society? Well, of course it is, because some of the combinations that uh, inventors come up with 
don't get accepted and others do. So clearly you've got a process of selection going on. So the closer you look at the way uh, innovation works uh, to change society, uh, the, the more it looks like biological evolution. So I wanted to see how far I could take that idea, whether I could uh, uh, turn everything uh, onto a Procrustean bed of Darwinism. Uh, and that's what this book is trying to do. And it's kind of, I've been working up to this uh, all my life in a way. And um, uh, John Tierney, introducing me yesterday, said, um, well, now you've written a book called The Evolution of Everything. There's nothing left to write about. Uh, um, unless I can find a book to write about called The Evolution of a Few Things I Forgot to Mention, which is possible. Um, uh, I think the Darwin's idea of evolution through natural selection is one of the great ideas uh, that human beings have ever come up with. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a difficult idea to get, out, get your head around, uh, and it's counterintuitive. Um, and that is to say, particularly when we look at the natural world, still to this day, we see design, we see purpose, we see function. You can't look at the structure of the human eye and not uh, conclude that it was designed for seeing. Its job is to do seeing. Uh, and yet Darwin comes along and says that may be true in the sense that its form is fitted to its function, but that doesn't mean that someone had a plan to make something for seeing. It, 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 it got that way spontaneously and without ever having a goal in mind. Uh, and that's the sort of the, 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 the difficult bit about um, uh, natural selection that people to this day find very difficult about, about biological evolution. So what I'm kind of arguing is that the same is likely to be true of society because we can see evolution happening in, in human society. And therefore, when we find really well-functioning human institutions or human technologies, we should consider the possibility that they have emerged without a plan uh, in a bottom-up way rather than through top-down command and control uh, without someone really uh, being in charge of them. And therefore that Darwin's version of evolution by natural selection in genetic systems is the special theory of evolution, rather like uh, special relativity was the special theory of, of relativity, uh, and that there's a general theory of evolution that we should, we should look at that evolution happens everywhere, that, it is, uh, that, that what happens in human society is much more incremental, much more gradual than we tend to assume. It doesn't, society doesn't change in great big jumps. It tends to, when you look at it closely, be a case of moving to the adjacent possible. You, you, you take one step and then you move to the next step. It's much more gradual than we thought. It shows descent with modification, so you can trace the family tree of of an idea or, or technology um, from its, its ancestors, uh, just as you can with a, a, a biological creature. And there's something inexorable about it. it. It sort of moves forward whether we like it to or not. And you can't speed it up and you can't slow it down. I mean, we've known about Moore's law for 40, 50 years now, and yet Moore's law is still working. It's still going at the same speed. The fact that we know about it doesn't enable us to cheat it and to, to jump ahead of Moore's law. Um, that's the sort of thing that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. And of course, crucially, if you're going to have an evolutionary system, there must be an element of trial and error. Uh, in other words, uh, in, 
biological evolution, there has to be mutation and selection uh, in which the bad, uh, bad combinations of genes get rejected and the good ones get accepted. Uh, and that must be the case in uh, societal change if you're going to have an evolutionary change. So the question is, do we see trial and error? Do we see um, uh, human beings, when they're trying to change a technology or, or an or a institution or a system, uh, trying different ideas, some of which succeed and some of which don't? Uh, and uh, I would argue that, yes, we do. Um, uh, the, the closer you look at how things change in human society, the more trial and error you find. Just a little example, the designs of aeroplanes. In the first uh, few decades of aeroplanes, there's an ex a ferment of experimentation in, in, in how you design the tailplane or the wings, how many wings you have, whether you have the propeller at the front or the back. You know, There's all sorts of different designs which which are tried, some of which survive and some of which don't. And, of course, the corollary of this is that we're not recognising this enough. We're not recognising that evolution is uh, the, 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 the way which society changes. Uh, we are creationists. And um, there are, uh, you know, I, Don Boudreau, for example, makes this point very clearly in, in terms of economics, that uh, we, we tend to believe that someone has designed uh, an outcome when actually it's emerged um, uh, within society. Now, I might be being a little bit Procrustean here. Uh, Procrustes, as you remember, stretched his guests so they fitted the bed um, that he made them stay on. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's certainly true that I'm going to have to concede at certain points that there are top-down things in the world. There are... Um, individuals who matter, who make a difference in history. Um, it's not always ordinary people interacting among each other who bubble up ideas. Um, but I think that we have erred on the side of thinking that things are more top-down than they are. So just to give you some sort of thoughts to get you... Some, some, I mean, the book is full of anecdotes of, of, of things that have changed in an evolutionary way in human society... Um, just to give you some examples, music. Take the take music. Music is always changing. You know, every generation has different genres of music in different parts of the world, in different places. But there's a con continual evolution of music, and it's pretty gradual when you when you think about it. Of course, there are sort of people who get called revolutionaries in music, but when you look at it, they're kind of building on what came before. You know, the Beatles is building on it. Elvis Presley was building on. Uh, blues and rock or whatever. Uh, and you can also see the cross-fertilisation that is characteristic of an e evolutionary system where two types of music come together and, and um, uh, swap ideas and come up with, with a third. Uh, but you can see dissent with modification in music very clearly. Gods. Gods are another thing that evolve. Uh, in the um, uh, Bronze Age, gods were vengeful and petty tyrants who got very upset if you offended them and things like that. And uh, you know, they had really rather mundane uh, concerns in their lives. Um, now they're disembodied spirits of benevolence, um, and there tends to be only one of them. Uh, that's a change that you can see gradually coming through history at different times and in different places. Uh, and I have a, a chapter on the evolution of religion, which is guaranteed to offend um, quite a lot of people. <laughs> Um, but then there's something to offend everyone in pretty well every chapter in, in the book. 
government, for example. Um, I, I like to say about this book that um, uh, my right-wing friends won't like what I say about God and my left-wing friends won't what, like what I say about government. So uh, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Um, <laughs> governments, essentially, you can trace the history of governments pretty clearly as a gradual evolutionary thing. They evolve out of protection rackets. Government starts as somebody asserting a monopoly of violence on society, uh, essentially saying, look, instead of us all fighting each other, I'm going to be the one with the weapons and the rest of you are not. Uh, and that's all right because there'll be peace because I will have all the weapons. And that's essentially where governments come from. And you can see, I mean, I, give, I tell the story in, in the book, a wonderful um, bit of work by David Scarbeck on the emergence of uh, spontaneous governance in prison gangs, that prison gangs essentially are about uh, imposing monopoly of violence uh, within a prison and thereby suppressing violence. And it's the same phenomenon. It's, it's a form of government evolving. Um, so it's happening even today. But of course, governments move on and become very different things, and they start uh, do, pr providing other services than just monopoly of violence. Uh, uh, and you know, eventually they come up with welfare states and so on. So, so it, 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 the, the history of government is a very evolutionary history. Cities, cities evolve very clearly. Uh, they, the, there are rules about what a city looks like at a certain stage, at a certain size and a certain stage of development. Uh, these rules are not written down. They're not laws. They're not, you, know, you don't have to obey them, but it turns out that cities do obey them. There are wonderful regularities about this. Jeffrey West has particularly written well about this. And, of course, what these things are, I would argue, are phenomena that are the product of human action but not the product of human design. And that, of course, is a famous quote from the 18th century Scottish philosopher Adam Ferguson um, who, who said there's a whole category of things out there that are not man-made, man-designed objects like, you know, this uh, wooden thing. Um, uh, and they're not natural objects either, uh, they are somewhere in between. They're man-made in the sense that, uh, you know, clearly human beings were involved in their creation, uh, and yet there's no sense in which they were designed, uh, they were planned. The clearest example of that, I think, is the English language. When you think about it, the English language is clearly man-made, it's not a natural phenomenon, uh, and yet it is, uh, and it's full of rules, it's full of structure, it's full of order, uh, it's extremely complex. It's, it's got a beautiful fit between form and function. Uh, it's as complex as a rainforest in terms of each word having its place in the, in the vocabulary, just like each species has its place in a rainforest. Uh, and yet it's ridiculous to say that it was designed by anyone or that it's run by anyone. Uh, uh, there is no chief executive of the English language, thank goodness. Uh, there is no central committee. Um, uh, uh, there is no constitution of the English language. And it's full of rules that we all obey, but we don't even know half the time. We know some of the rules of the English language, but a lot of them uh, have emerged spontaneously. So, for example, there's a rule that, uh, in English, you shorten words if you're going to use them frequently. So most of the frequently used words in English language are short. Um, and also there's another rule that uh, short, frequently used words don't change their meanings, whereas long, infrequently words can change their meanings. These are the kinds of rules you pick up if you study English closely, uh, but we're all kind of a, we're all not really aware of them, and yet we're obeying them. Uh, and there's no Supreme Court to tell us that we have to obey these rules, and yet we do.
In the book, I go back 2,000 years to try and find the origin of the first person who really sees this clearly, and I, I fasten on Lucretius, uh, the Roman poet uh, who was uh, hymning the virtues of Epicurus and the Epicurean philosophy, uh, and who died in the middle of writing his only poem, uh, as far as we can tell, because it ends rather abruptly. Um, uh, uh, the poem is called De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, uh, and I think it's a it's a fascinating poem. It had an enormous influence on, on later history, particularly on Thomas Jefferson, had five different copies of it in his library, uh, Spinoza, um, uh, uh, Voltaire, all these kind of people were hugely influenced by, by Lucretius de Rerum Natura. The poem disappeared for uh, about 12 centuries uh, because the Christian church didn't like it, because it's a very uh, atheistic poem. It says there's no such thing as gods or spirits, uh, and it's unbelievably modern in some ways, because what he says is that the world consists of atoms and voids. Nothing else. There's just atoms and voids. There's no spirits. There's no essences. There's no... Uh, and, and, and a living creature is made of atoms and voids just as a non-living creature is atoms and voids. It's just they're different combinations of atoms and voids. Now, we know that's true. How he knew that 2,000 years ago, it, it, it almost boggles the mind to, to understand. Uh, but, of course, it's a very evolutionary view because it's about recombining. It's about recombining things. And in, in places, he gets terribly close to sounding like... He sounds, he sounds like Charles Darwin in places. He also sounds like Richard Dawkins in places. Um, so, um, so I use little quotes from Lucretius to, to make the point that this isn't a new idea throughout the book. Uh, but jump forward to 1759, the year in which... Adam Smith publishes uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, which is a century, exactly a century before Charles Darwin publishes The Origin of Species. Uh, and you find the same sort of idea in that book. Theory of Moral Sentiments is a very radical book, a very subversive book, uh, but a very difficult to understand book. It's rather densely written. But what he's saying in that book is that morality emerges from the way we interact with each other as ordinary people. It doesn't emerge from priests telling us what to do. We don't need to be told what's right and wrong. We work it out for ourselves. We calibrate our behavior according to how people react to us. Uh, if we go around killing people and people lock us up for doing it, we learn that that's a bad thing to do. Uh, uh, and so essentially you can have different versions of morality in different society according to how people are are getting feedback for their behavior, that essentially we decide among ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And of course, this is a terribly subversive thing to say in the 18th century, because uh, you're supposed to think that if it wasn't for priests telling you what was right and wrong, nobody would know what was right and wrong. Um, Smith then goes on to uh, write The Wealth of Nations and make very much the same sort of point about the economy, that it's an emergent phenomenon, that it's a uh, it's driven by an invisible hand, a phrase he uses in both moral, moral sentiments and wealth of nations. Um, and that, you know, it, it is not possible to plan uh, the economy of a country or a city. Uh, it emerges through, tra through um, uh, supply and demand and, tra and uh, uh, trial and error and um, the price mechanism. And, and he has, I think, this rather wonderful sentence in uh, Wealth of Nations, where he says, the sovereign is completely discharged from a duty in the attempting to perform which he must always be exposed to innumerable delusions, and for the proper performance of which 
no human wisdom or knowledge could ever be sufficient. The duty of superintending the industry of private people and of directing it towards the employment most suitable to the interests of society. So he's saying you simply couldn't plan uh, uh, an economy uh, the way we do manage to do it. By the way, I just want to say something parenthetically at this point, which is to say that to say society evolves and technology evolves and culture evolves is not social Darwinism. It's the very opposite. It's 180 degrees, degrees different. Um, social Darwinism was essentially the 19th century idea that now we've discovered that biological evolution happens, we need for society to progress to help that biological evolution happen by uh, telling people who, who they can marry or who they can't marry, by uh, um, um, telling people whether they should be uh, sterilized or not, and eventually telling people whether they should be killed or not. Uh, and so essentially it's about helping social progress through assisting biological evolution. Uh, and I'm saying quite the opposite, that actually what we should do is encourage ideas to die so that people don't have to die, uh, essentially. It's about cultural change. And there is a perfectly good theory of this now. Uh, I mean, you know, I, uh, in this book, I rely hugely on a lot much cleverer people than me to, to, to underpin the ideas I'm writing about. And Rob Boyd, Pete Richardson, and, and Joe Henrik have, in my view, uh, created a, a really coherent theory of cultural evolution, uh, which is essentially about under what conditions will you get an evolutionary phenomenon emerging between people and among people. Uh, and they essentially say that any system of information, where you're sharing information, where you're exchanging information, uh, if there's a degree of fidelity, a degree of uh, mutation in, in, in the system, uh, and degree and, and a degree of selective survival, you will get uh, natural, spontaneous, undirected evolution. Uh, that you don't have to have particulate information, which is what people used to think uh, about cultural evolution. The, the problem was you don't have a, something equivalent to a gene, which is a sort of specific um, hard object, uh, if you like. Um, now, one of the reasons we... Um, we are too creationist about the human world, I think, uh, is because we have something called the intentional stance, what, uh, what uh, Dan Dennett calls the intentional stance. Dan Dennett has this other wonderful analogy, which is the, the, the phrase skyhook. Um, he says that uh, we tend to go around thinking that the world is built using skyhooks, that we build buildings by attaching a hook to the sky and then build them from the top down. Um, which would be incredibly, incredibly convenient if we could do it, uh, but uh, of course we can't. And the phrase originated in a, um, uh, an episode in the First World War where a pilot was told to stay up there because we were not ready for you yet. You just stay up there. And he replied, this machine is not fitted with skyhooks. Um, uh, and it, so Dan Dennett uses the skyhook for the, 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 the flaw in our thinking where we tend to see top-down when we should see bottom-up. Um, and, of course, we, we, we clearly have a sort of quite sensible tendency to do this because we, we look at the world and we think, well, hang on, um, some, uh, you know, that looks purposeful or it's, it's probably better to err on the side of assuming it is. So when a thunderstorm 
um, knocks down your neighbour's house, you think, well, he must be a sinful chap. So, you know, that was, that was the, the right thing to do. And throughout history, we've, we've kind of tended to, 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 to see intention where there isn't intention. We're, we're, we've got a hair trigger for seeing intentionality. Um, one consequence of this way of looking at society is that uh, it's very sceptical of the great man theory um, of history. The great man theory of history is that, that history is, is caused by great men rather than great men are caused by history. Um, and uh, the French Enlightenment was particularly resistant to this idea uh, and said we've spent far too much time thinking that Julius Caesar or someone w- was important. Actually, we should look at um, uh, the, 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 what, what ordinary people are doing uh, and the, the fact that great men are taking the credit, uh, as it were. Uh, and so if you look up in the Encyclopédie, the uh, great manifesto of the French Enlightenment written by Diderot and d'Alembert, um, you find there are no biographical entries at all. They went that far. They said, let's, let's just not put any... So if you want to read Isaac Newton's biography in that book, you have to look up the entry under Woolstrop, which is the village he was born in, in, in Lincolnshire. Um, and yet it's clear that, you know, after the 20th century, it's pretty hard to believe that human beings, individual human beings, can't change history. Clearly there can be huge top-down influences on history from individuals. We have Mao, we have Stalin, we have Hitler and others to, to show us that. And to some extent we have Churchill on the other side, probably the only politician in Britain who, would, who wouldn't have done a deal with Hitler had anyone else got into power. It might, have, it might have come out differently. But I think it's true, as Lord Acton said, that great men are usually bad men, um, uh, that uh, it's much easier to take history by the scruff of the neck and change it in a different direction in a bad direction than in a good direction. And if, there's, if, if I'm sceptical of the great man theory of history in, in history, although I admit they, they do exist, even more so when it comes to technology. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in the 1870s. So did 22 other people in the same decade independently. Um, in Britain, we give the credit to Joseph Swan. He came from the town I come from, Newcastle. So we're very firm in Newcastle that Edison is a fraud and Joseph Swan deserves all the credit. They actually ended up sort of going into business together, uh, uh, but um, Edison was the better businessman. In Russia, they say it was Lodigin who invented the light bulb, and it's nonsense, all this Edison nonsense, you know, etc. So, And, of course, everybody's right. Actually, the point was the light bulb was a ripe idea by the 1870s. It was the next adjacent possible step to take. The technology was all in place to recombine it and produce the idea of a light bulb. And it's inconceivable that if uh, Edison hadn't existed... Uh, we wouldn't have light bulbs. You know, it was the, 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 you know, the vacuum, the glowing filament, the, the glass uh, case. These are all things that had to come together around then. Uh, and that's true of almost every invention you can think of. Think of the search engine, one of the great innovations of my lifetime. I use it every day. Uh, uh, and as important to my generation as the steam engine was to the um, uh, 18th century. Uh, 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 and yet, if... Larry Page had never met Sergey Brin. Do we think we'd not have search engines now? No, of course we would. In fact, there were about 20 search engines on the market when Google was founded in 1994. It's just that Google came up with the best one and managed to sweep, sweep the pool. Um, and this is true, of course, of scientific discovery too. Uh, Charles Darwin hit on the idea of evolution 
and then so did Ru Alfred Russell Wallace a few years later. And it was because Wallace was about to scoop him that Darwin rushed into print. Um, even Einstein, who tends to stand out as being a unique genius who saw things that nobody else did, uh, was actually someone who, uh, had, he not ex had, had Einstein fallen under a tram uh, in Switzerland um, before he got to special relativity, Hendrik Lorentz would have come up with special relativity. As Kevin Kelly uh, documents in his book, What Technology Wants, we know of six different inventors of the thermometer, three of the hypodermic needle, four of vaccination, four of decimal fractions, five of the electric telegraph, four of photography, three of logarithms, five of the steamboat, six of the electric uh, railroad. Now, I'm not saying scientists and inventors don't matter. Clearly, they do. You, clearly, you have to have you know, the right conditions for people to come up with this kind of thing and the right conditions for Edison to turn a, make a business out of them and so on. But I am saying that, that there's, there's an inexorable, inevitable evolutionary nature to this. And the more you look at innovation, the more what really counts is, is ordinary people uh, interacting, not one or two brilliant geniuses. Uh, um, uh, because of Nobel Prizes, because of patents, we tend to give one or two geniuses the credit, but actually a lot of it is, is bottom-up. Uh, and this, of course, challenges the linear model that, that science comes before technology, which comes before application. I don't think that's, that's true. Um, and the best example of this that we've got in front of us today is the Internet. Uh, the Internet is... Uh, clearly something that is the, the result of human action but not of human design um, in the sense that nobody had a plan for it, nobody is in charge of it to this day, there is no central committee, thank goodness, although people keep trying to be in charge of it. Um, uh, and it doesn't originate in a couple of brilliant individuals. Sure, you can give Tim Berners-Lee or, or um, Vint Cerf or someone you know, credit for certain parts of it, but they're pretty dispensable in the sense that if they hadn't been there, someone else would have come up with these, these technologies. And in fact, what, the, the closer you look, uh, and you certainly can't give Al Gore credit, by the way, um, uh, and, and, and yes, it came out of government to some extent, but it also came out of industry, and actually it didn't. It came out of ordinary people on networks. And it's pretty inconceivable that in the, uh, the, at the time when it appeared, the, the networking of computers because of communication technology, would not have happened somehow. Um, uh, so it very much is a bottom-up thing. It was most of the protocols we use on the internet were developed by peer-to-peer -peer sharing uh, in a in in a, in in a, in a by people we've don't, we've never heard of. Uh, as Stephen Berlin Johnson puts it, you can't even call the internet bottom-up because it has no top. So it's a meaningless uh, phrase. And what's, what's, has the internet, is, the, is, that, is that the end of things? No, of course not. It's just the beginning of what we're going to be able to do uh, with evolutionary systems online. I can't predict the future, no one else can, but I suspect that if you want to understand what comes next uh, on the internet, <laughs> blockchain may well be the way to look. Uh, blockchain looks like uh, it's the technology behind Bitcoin, it's the technology that disintermediates uh, government and 
finance and law and things like this, potentially, not yet. Uh, it, 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 because it's a machine for creating trust, for, for self-verifying uh, that you are who you say you are and that you can do what you say you can do, uh, that it will create a whole new ecosystem of uh, doing business that, that could be very exciting and could result in some, some very odd worlds in which you don't need bankers and you don't need lawyers. What a pity. Um, <laughs> I want to just end with um, uh, one clear story of an evolutionary system versus a command and control system, and it's topical, and that's the China's one-child policy, which came to an end a couple of weeks ago. Um, the demographic transition is the reduction in the birth rate that happens all around the world uh, when people get a little bit more prosperous and a bit better educated uh, and, and somewhat healthier. Essentially, you know, once child mortality drops, people plan smaller families and they invest in quality rather than quantity of kids. Uh, and we now know, because it's happened on pretty well every continent, it's happening on, in Africa at the moment, that if you can get health and, uh, and, and wealth and education to people, the birth rate will drop as a sort of evolutionary consequence of that, as an unplanned consequence of that. And that, I would say, is the sort of evolutionary version of, of the demographic transition. But China decided that it wanted to do a top-down one instead. And the one-child policy was both futile and inhumane. It was futile because it genuinely didn't work. The Chinese birth rate fell more in the 10 years before the policy came in than in the 10 years after, which is truly remarkable when you think about it. Um, but it was a very specifically top-down piece of social engineering, which originated actually in the West. A man named Song Jian, who was a control systems expert in a missile technology laboratory in China, um, that is to say his job was to work out where the missile would land after you fire it. Um, he went to a conference in Helsinki in 1978. Uh, this is all, by the way, in Susan Greenhull's uh, book, Just One Child. Uh, and there he came across a book called The Limits to Growth, which was a manifesto of the um, Club of Rome, uh, which was full of people saying, um, we environmentalists are very worried about the population explosion. We need to plan the world in future. We cannot go on with this unplanned world where population growth is going to go on uh, uncontrolled. We need to work out how to tell people how many babies they can have uh, and, if necessary, enforce this firmly. And he loved this idea, Song Jian did, and he went back to China. He republished a lot of it under his own name. Uh, he became more famous for his population ideas than for his uh, missile control ideas. And he eventually got the idea, he got the ear of a uh, deputy prime minister, and even Deng Xiaoping was then persuaded. And the, the one-child policy was brought in within a year and a half of him getting back from Helsinki. Uh, and he, it was specifically his, his plan. And they put a horrible general in charge, and it was very inhumanely expressed. So that's why I think an evolutionary view of the world is a much more humane view of the world than a top-down view of the world. And we should, we should learn to be more suspicious uh, of top-down plans, but also of top-down interpretations of how the world works. Um, just to finish, Marion mentioned that I'm now in the House of Lords in, in, in Britain, which you might think is rather... You know, what's this chap coming along from an 
elite institution telling us that uh, elites don't matter. Um, and it, you've got a good point there. Um, uh, but we're very up to date in the House of Lords, and I'll give you a, 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 an example of how that is and why that is. One of my colleagues the other day said, I'm too old to understand social media. Um, I can't cope online, so... Uh, you know, it's, it's going to have to bypass me. But I do understand that the world changes and we have to keep up with the world and we have to understand how the world, world moves forward. And so I'm going to do in everyday life what people do on social media. I'm going to walk down the street, go up to people and tell them I like them um, <laughs> and show them pictures of my wife and my cat, um, tell them what I had for breakfast. Um, and he said, it's working. I've got followers, two social, <laughs> two social workers and a policeman. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Um, Ron Bailey is the award-winning uh, science correspondent for the uh, uh, public policy magazine Reason. He writes a weekly online column dealing with science and technology policy. Uh, for Reason Online. His latest book, uh, just out this summer, is uh, The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in 21st Century. Uh, in its review of the book, Sierra Club magazine noted, Bailey's research was clearly exhaustive, but complained that it is overly packed with studies and statistics. <laughs> what a goal. Uh, previously... Too much science. Previously, Mr. Bailey uh, produced uh, several uh, weekly national public television series, and uh, he was a staff writer uh, for Forbes magazine covering uh, economic, scientific, and business topics. His articles and reviews have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Commentary, the New York Times Book Review, Time, Scientific American, and National Review. His work has been included in the best American science and nature writing. And uh, he took the top prize in the magazine feature uh, commentary and column category in the Los Angeles uh, Press Club 2004 Journalism Award for the article Battle for the Brain. Uh, with that, help me welcome uh, um, Ronald Bailey. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Marianne, for inviting me. Uh, to participate in this. Thank you for writing an absolutely splendid book. Uh, when I first finished reading the book, I immediately emailed Matt and said, you're no longer a journalist. you become a philosopher. I'm very jealous. Um, and, 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 and with regard to the Internet, it, it occurred to me I was uh, doing an article, feature on the evolution of the Internet, and I was looking at, at Internet commerce, and, the, and I discovered that the first Internet commerce and I kid you not, occurred when it was ARPANET, and it was in the 1970s, and the first commerce was actually a deal between two computer labs to buy and sell marijuana. <laughs> so, thank you, Internet. Um, I find myself uh, in the, the curious position of the uh, author of a book called The End of Doom. I've decided to take upon myself to, uh, basically to contemplate the possibility that uh, that a mutation might arise and, and outcompete market liberalism. Everything evolves, but maybe not always in the ways we might like to work, have it work out. Uh, biological evolution has no end goals. 
So those creatures that survive reproduce, presumably the sorts of cultural, economic, technological, and governmental institution described by Matt so brilliantly also does not have an end goal. So what happens, so bad things could happen. We could evolve perhaps in, in, in ways we might not desire. As a takeoff point, I note in his last book, The Fatal Conceit, Friedrich Hayek persuasively argued that, quote, an atavistic longing after the life of the noble savage is the main source of the collectivist tradition. Tribal instincts once helped roving bands of primitive people, our, our ancestors, to survive and are still the bases, if you will, of the bonds of intimacy we share with our families and our friends. We are all still little tribes or little platoons, as Burke would say. However, the more recently evolved institutions of individual liberty, contracts, the rule of law, private property, profit, strike modern tribalists as cold and unfair. The sentiment was well captured in the Communist Manifesto in which Karl Marx and Engels declared the avatar, as he called it, of free trade, the bourgeoisie, quote, has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. Something charming about Marx saying something about heavenly ecstasies. But anyway, modern progressives are motivated by that same old instinct to restore primitive egalitarianism that characterized human social relations when people were living in primitive hunter-gatherer gangs. And that sort of corresponds, if you will, to the Marxian notion of primitive pre-state communism. For their part, modern conservatives also have a collectivist vice. They intuitively dislike the socially disruptive character of markets and free speech and want to protect their groups from outside competition and cultural corruption. These atavistic longings are part of the biopsychological heritage of humanity and must be constantly resisted if the ambit of liberty is to expand and thrive. If, if in fact, evolution of cultural institutions and technology and so forth is allowed to, pr to proceed. Liberalism rises above, liberalism in the form of, of libertarianism rises above and rejects the primitive moralities embodied in universalist collectivism of progressives and the tribalist collectivism of conservatives. In doing so, it has made the rule of law, freedom of speech, religious tolerance, and modern prosperity possible. Now, Hayek also identified, and we've been celebrating here, the advent of modern science. It has been a great liberating force for humanity. But he had, Hayek identified a specific problem with the development of science. Is success tempts some people to believe that they now know enough to mold society after their heart's desires. And those desires are always in the collectivist direction. As Hayek pointed out in the Constitution of Liberty, and I quote, those intoxicated by the advance of knowledge so often become the enemies of freedom. They become, if you will, scientific creationists. They believe that they can create society in the direction they want because we now have the technology. We have the knowledge. And we see this all the time. In truth, the would-be molders of the future have it exactly backwards, of course. The expansion of science means that every individual is increasingly ignorant relative to the amount of information now known. Free markets, democratic political institutions, liberal science en enable people to discover, marshal, and benefit from new widely dispersed information. As Hayek explained, and I, 
want to underline this, it is because freedom means the renunciation of direct control of individual efforts that a free society can make use of so much more knowledge than the mind of the wisest ruler can comprehend. In other words, we allow things to evolve. Yet, of course, unfortunately, there's no shortage of folks who think themselves just the sort of wise rulers who need to help us out, and they're willing to take control of evolution and help us. Uh, I came across one such example recently. is a Yale University bioethicist, Wendell Wallach. I don't think he wants to be the wise ruler, but he would like to be, if you will, the, uh, the prime minister of a wise ruler. In his new book, A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control, on beyond our control, Wallach worries that our, quote, incessant outpouring of, brown, of groundbreaking discoveries and tools are raising a tech storm that will soon be dangerously beyond our control. The question of the heart of the book is, and I quote, we, humanity as a whole, have the intelligence to, is whether we, humanity as a whole, have the intelligence to navigate the promise and perils of technological innovation. Well, just in case you're wondering by who we, humanity as a whole, might be, and how we're supposed to navigate it, uh, Wallach notes, in a democratic society, we, the public, should give approval to futures being created. I'm going to repeat that. We, the public, should give approval to futures being created. So now everyone gets to vote on what innovations can proceed and how fast. What could possibly go wrong? Um, as is often the case with such plans, a more top-down proposal lurks in Wallach's actual uh, book. Uh, what Wallach would prefer to do is to create what he calls technological governance coordinating committees, staffed by experts, that would guide policymakers and the public. Distinct committees would, be co would comp quote, comprehensively coordinate the development of different scientific fields and oversee the industries that each field creates. Governance coordinating committees. Where have we heard this before? In other words, they would function as gatekeepers, giving permission or not to the rest of us to develop and use technologies. Without apparent irony, Wallach writes, moderating the adoption of technology should not be done for ideological reasons. <laughs> as though the idea of moderating progress is not itself an ideological idea. I mean. I, I will parenthetically stay here, and I'm going to be working on this at some point, but I want to make the following claim. You can have fascism, you have communism, you can have socialism, and so forth. The most pernicious idea humanity has ever invented is the precautionary principle. And we will discuss that perhaps later. Anyway, Wallach pointedly asked the following question, and please get this. Does the freedom of the individual give a... Does the freedom of the individual give a small minority, that might be you guys, pursuing its goals the right to force on others radical restructuring of human existence? Are individuals allowed to do that? His answer is clearly no. And as far as Wallach is, and Wallach is far from alone in wanting to stand athwart technological progress yelling stop. So let's talk about threats to innovation and what is going on and how these mutations might come about. And I hope they don't. Again, we can look at some remarkably interesting work by Northwestern University economist Joel Mokir in his book, The Gifts of Athena, The Historical Origins of the Knowledge Economy. And he notes uh, that history repeatedly shows that technological progress 
in society, in a society, is by and large a temporary and vulnerable process with many powerful enemies with a vested interest in the status quo or an aversion to change continuously threatening it. The net result is that changes in technology, the mainspring of economic progress, have been rare relative to what we know human creativity is capable of. Just think about people back in the Roman Empire were as smart as anybody in this room, but they had basically one thirtieth the income that we do today. They were as smart, but they didn't have those institutions they, that allowed them to evolve over time. Uh, so uh, Mokir continues that stasis for change is a, a, is a very slow rate has been the rule rather than the exception. It is our own age and especially the rapid technological change in the Western world that is the historical aberration. We have been able to, to, to evolve and speed up. But given all the benefits that modern scientific and technological enterprises bestowed on humanity, why would anyone want to slow it down or even stop? Well, rent seeking. Technological progress inevitably involves losers, and these losers tend to be concentrated and usually find it easy to organize. One of those losers might be Donald Trump. Sorry. Uh, he, he glumly, uh, Mokir glumly adds, sooner or later, and this is a terrible problem, he, and I would like to have Matt think about this a bit. Uh, Mokir adds, sooner or later in any society, the progress of technology will grind to a halt because the forces that used to support innovation become vested interests. In a purely dialectical fashion, technological progress creates the very forces that eventually destroy it. I hope that that's not true. The defining political conflict of the 21st century is shaping up to be the battle over the future of technology. Uh, Mokir warns activists, bureaucrats, and lawyers are hampering promising research and making it more costly. But the achievements made possible by use, new useful knowledge in terms of economic well-being and human capabilities have been unlike anything experienced before by the human race. The question remains, can this advance be sustained? Will evolution be allowed to proceed? That is indeed the question for the 21st century. Um, let's, let us, at, at the end of his book, brilliant book, by the way, if you don't have copies of it, you need to buy a copy of it. It makes a wonderful bar mitzvah, wedding, Christmas present, birthday. You can't have too many copies. I'm sure you agree. <laughs> uh, he concludes, it is a fair bet that the 21st century will be dominated mostly by shocks of bad news, but will experience mostly invisible progress of good things. Incremental, inexorable, inevitable changes will bring us material and spiritual improvements that will make the lives of our grandchildren wealthier, healthier, happier, cleverer, kinder, freer, more peaceful, and more equal, almost entirely as a serendipitous byproduct of cultural evolution. Um, I hope that that is true. Um, as Matt makes very clear in the book, uh, liberal societies are veritable evolution machines that frenetically generate new mutations and swiftly recombine them to produce a vast array of new products, services, and social institutions that enable ever more people to, to flourish. So far, liberal societies are outcompeting in the sense of being richer and more appealing. Um, those polities that are still dominated by the institutions that maintain atavistic collectivism and produce cultural, moral, and economic stagnation. Ultimately, I believe that Matt is right. I believe that, at, that as a constant 
novelty producing dynamo, market liberalism has a pretty good chance of staying ahead of cultural and political mutations that might arise and tend in more authoritarian directions. And especially so if we can get more people to understand what Matt is talking about. Thank you very much. And I look forward to any discussion. Let me misuse the, um, uh, my, my, I guess, position as a, as a um, here at the podium and ask you, um, have you thought, what is the best way to secure the, the blessings of prosperity and abundance uh, for future generations? I mean, you obviously both uh, thought a lot about um, where we were. I'm talking about Deirdre McCloskey's famous phrase, you know, the, the, the greatest thing that happened in economics was the fact that, you know, in 1800, um, we were roughly between 10 and 20 times poorer than we are now. 200 years, the last 200 years have been absolutely remarkable from the perspective of, of increasing prosperity. Um, so what is the key toward con convincing uh, people who might be open to this, uh, these ideas of, of stopping evolution and precautionary principle uh, how do we convince them that that's a bad idea? Either one of them. Um, I think I can answer that and also take up Ron's challenge towards his end there about whether the, 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 the vested interests in stopping change or in standing a thought history can win. Um, because as he, in that quote that Ron read out at the end, uh, the, the 20th century, I mean, this first dawned on me, actually, when, when 1999 came around and various newspapers commissioned pieces from me and other people saying, was this a good or a bad century? Um, and at the time, I was a bit undecided. I knew about World War II and, you know, um, Chairman Mao and things like that. So it seemed like a pretty bad century. But, you know, but it was going and looking at the data and saying, well, actually, despite all that, we got these unbelievable improvements in people's living standards. So it was definitely a good century. Uh, and, and so that's why I made the point that all the good things were gradual and all the bad things were sudden in the 20th century. Uh, and uh, so I think, the, and, and the, you know, if that was quite a test, Ron, for the idea that you can stand a thought history and stop it, they tried really hard. And when you think about technological prohibitions, you know, the Ming Chinese not letting you build ships and the... Um, uh, you know, the Americans not letting you make alcohol, you know, they don't tend to last very long, prohibitions, and, and it will out. Europe at the moment is completely convinced that genetically modified crops are the spawn of the devil um, and is, is doing huge damage to the world by not letting Africans get on with it because they, Africans say, well, we better not do this because we then can't sell to Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not stopping the technology. They're slowing it, and they're, they're preventing it get a, applied in Europe and Africa, but it's still happening in the rest of the world. So I, I personally think that the gradual nature of evolutionary progress and, and innovation will overwhelm whoever tries to get in, in the way. Uh, I, I hope that's right. And that's what I think we need to do to answer your question, Marion. Sorry, this is a very long answer to a short question. Um, is is to get across to people the, the, the to, to to point out which you're doing so beautifully the gradual nature of of good news, um, okay. because news the the news bulletins are not going to tell you about the gradual stuff, and all the good stuff. It's very kind of you. Well, on GMOs, we'll, uh, Cato will be hosting the. Uh, head of technology for Monsanto in a couple of months' uh, time to talk about all the wonderful things they are doing 
in order to improve uh, food production in, in Africa specifically. Uh, Ron, did you want to add anything? I don't want to be a downer, but I am afraid that I, I detect a, 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 a growing movement to slow down uh, technologies. And unfortunately, the things like the financial crisis and so forth have gotten people frightened about this. They're worried about their jobs. We have huge discussions now whether the, ro the robots are going to take away our work and what will we do and that kind of thing. And I think, again, it's because of a lack of imagination. We can always see the downside of new technologies. It's very easy for us to conjure monsters. It's very hard for us to conjure angels. Uh, Dante pointed that out very well, I thought, actually, in his, uh, his, his poetry. But so... I'm afraid that we may be in a monster conjuring phase right now, and it's, it's worrying me terribly. Um, on the other hand, on, you know, on, on, on alternate days, I return to my sunny disposition, and I think that things like the Cato Institute and Reason Magazine will prevail in, in the discussion of ideas. But other days, I don't know. Just a postscript to that. Who's we, again? Because we, I think you're thinking about America, and America is turning more like Europe, is turning more yeah. precautionary, is turning more anti-technological. And thank God for the fact that it wasn't like that in the 20th century, because it probably kept alive the, the flame of progress uh, when the rest of the world wasn't interested. And I suspect the torch may have to pass, uh, and probably China isn't the best place to pass it to, but, but, but India may be. You know, there's a... Um, Amit uh, um, Farmer pointed out last night uh, at an event I was at that there's 100 million young Indians who voted for the first time in the general election this year. There's, a, there's much more technological optimism in, in a country like that. You know, the, the, the flame of, of progress may have to be taken up by someone else, which has happened before. You know, the Italian city-states picked it up when the Arab Empire turned its back on innovation. Um, but uh, rather depressing for America if it's going to give up on it, but it may be that's going to happen. All right. <clears throat> Let's open to Q&A. Uh, please uh, wait to be called on, then uh, wait for the mic. And... Uh, Please uh, tell us your name and affiliation and kindly um, have those questions uh, short so that we can uh, get through as many as possible. Gentleman in front over there, yes. Yes, I'd like, uh, Matt, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, sort of timing. There's a tendency to presumably caricature your work as basically anything that happened was inevitable, like the light bulb. Uh, but there are certain things which, for example, the recording industry, all the technology was there hundreds of years before, so we could have had original original uh, recordings of uh, Mozart's operas or maybe Shakespeare's plays. It didn't require electricity, for example. So I'm curious about whether things are much, very much out of sync. In other words, everything was there, but it didn't happen. A, sim a similar example would be the wheel, which is very recent, only a few thousand years uh, ago, very late in human development. Uh, in some places, presumably that everything was there to create the wheel and it didn't happen earlier uh, and it didn't happen in some civilizations at all. They never figured it out. Mm -hmm. So uh, would you talk a bit about that? Yes, it's a really good, good point. Uh, although I would push back a bit and say that on the whole I'm not terribly convinced by the examples that people come with. I hadn't heard about the recording one, and I'll need to talk to you afterwards about that, but the, the idea that Shakespeare could have been recorded. I suspect... Only with huge amounts of investment that were impractical, like, for example, the first computing engine built by Charles Babbage in the 1830s. In theory, it would work, but, boy, it needed a lot of work to make it work. You know, I mean, it, it, huge amounts of man-hours to, to make something that could 
just about do uh, a, a simple calculation. Um, uh, and the wheel had to co-evolve with the road. You know, there's no point in having wheels unless you've got pretty good surfaces to, to run them on. They're not much use on really rough terrain. Uh, so I suspect that, 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 that you know, it, it isn't that far ahead. I mean, I actually looked into this once. I tried to come up with an example of a relatively recent innovation that should have come along much earlier. And I came up with wheeled suitcases. Um, <laughs> you know, which are just wonderful, aren't they? <laughs> but then I thought about it harder and I thought, well, hang on. You know, lightweight aluminium wheels, fine. Big heavy steel wheels on a suitcase. When airports are quite small and rail stations are full of porters, not much point in them, really. You've got carts if you've got a heavy trunk. Um, so I'm not sure. And the guy who came up with the wheeled suitcase went round to Samsonite or whatever the firm was at the time and said, I've got this great idea, and he was rejected rather magnificently. Um, and we came back a few years later and, and it, it, it all took off. Um, uh, but, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, actually, wheeled suitcases probably came in about the right time. So I'm, I'm not completely convinced that there are things out there now that we should be inventing, we could have invented a long time ago and, and haven't. Um, there, there may be a few, surely, um, but uh, I, I don't think there are as many as we think. Let's go. Gentleman in the middle. Yes, you. Uh, yes. Um, I wanted to ask you um, whether you see patent law as being an impediment or a facilitator of innovation, uh, given that I, I view... Uh, that I view patents as essentially a top-down type of thing, and I think you'd agree with that. But I, I just wonder whether you see it as a facilitator or, an in, or something that um, is an impediment to innovation. Um, I take the view, I'll, I'll ask Ron to come in on this too, but I take the view that uh, uh, Alex Tabarak puts it rather well. He says some intellectual property is, is necessary, but too much is a bad thing. Where are we at the moment? Definitely in the too much territory. Uh, and I agree with that. I think that uh, uh, patents have turned into toll booths for charging for entry um, rather than uh, devices for sharing uh, good ideas. Uh, there's far too much patent trolling going on, etc. Not in the pharmaceutical industry, which is a special case because of the huge safety testing you have to do, etc. But I, I, I'm somewhat of a patent anarchist. Uh, and, you know, the idea that my book should have copyright, which is essentially the same idea, for 70 years after my death, just to help the Walt Disney Corporation, um, is ridiculous. Um, you know, why should my grandchildren... Let them go out and get a job. Why, why you know, instead of <laughs> making money off my words. Not that they will make any money off my words. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think some degree of intellectual property... Uh, is right, but I think the, the, the word property is very misleading because it's, it, it, the, the, the analogy doesn't map on well. I mean, I believe in property rights, physical property rights. Uh, I just think that intellectual property is a very different thing and we've gone too far in granting it uh, on the whole. Oh, okay, well, let's... Right, okay. Ron? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, let, me, let me give you a background a little bit on this. I, I agree with you it's not property, it's a government license. It, it's sanctioned in the Constitution as a possibility. And uh, it was the idea, 
well, Lincoln said basically patents uh, are basically uh, provide the fuel of interest uh, to the, the fire of genius. They're in, or, in other words, to encourage people to do things. But the critical thing that people always forget about patents, and, and it's a very screwed up system we have here, initially the idea is, is that we wanted to move from a world of trade secrets where people would keep information from one another as competitors into a world of disclosure where you would provide that information and get a limited license for doing that. And therefore, it's much like modern science, it's a disclosure mechanism. The first person to disclose gets the credit for it. In this case, they, first, they get the, the right to license it. And uh, 20 years seems fine to me for physical objects. And I would, you know, I I'm not a patent lawyer and I don't want to go into great detail, but drugs, yes, a machine, yes, but uh, the fact that I'm coming up with computer code or, or writing a novel or something, 20 years is too, well, computer code is way too long. It's crazy. Shouldn't have those patents. Business method patents is completely nuts. Um, but if you're doing something physical that could be easily copied and would, and would encourage, therefore, people to return to a world of, of, uh, of trade secrets, I think that we would lose uh, uh, some advantages that we currently would have. The system is really screwed up, and um, I despair. If I have to pick between patents the way they are now or patents the way that Ron Bailey would have his ideal world would do it uh, or no patents at all, I would go with no patents at all. I mean, it's crazy at this point. It's, it's way too elaborate. Okay, I'm trying to be geographically inclusive here. Um, gentleman in the back. Thank you. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more. You touched on political institutions, but making an analogy to biology of parasitic and symbiotic relationships, particularly in Europe, the UK, and the US right now, how you see that evolving? Because I think I, I certainly find it disturbing, and many other people who are here probably do too. I've I've certainly got grief in the past for describing governments as parasites. Um, uh, from Not here. People. Um, <laughs> so I've got to be careful what I say. But um, uh, it, it, it does feel to me like um, the more prosperous you make a society, the more possible it is then for uh, rent uh, um, tax eaters to live off it uh, and th whether they're doing a good job or not, if you see what I mean. Um, and uh, it... it it feels to me that so you've got a kind of arms race between a, uh, a the evolution of a host and the evolution of a parasite if you like but you know i'm not saying governments are only parasites of course they're not they do do other things and and we couldn't live without some government etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but i do think that that's the essence of public choice theory that that government will essentially um uh, expand to fill the budget available as it, it will be a budget budget max maximizing mechanism uh, and you see this in all sorts of examples and you know when uh, when an innovation does away with um well and the other point i think that it's worth making about government is that it does seem to to evolve much more slowly it's very bad at creative destruction it's very bad at disruption uh, and as a friend of mine gary runciman pointed out in a book recently if you brought daniel defoe back uh, who wrote about the condition of England in the early 18th century to England today, uh, he would recognize almost nothing about the country, you know, 
transport, clothing, everything would be really weird, except government, which would look much the same. There's still a constitutional monarch, there's still a bicameral parliament, there's still an unelected chamber in one of them, there's still a civil service, there's still sinecures, you know. The, and, and so why is that? Because of lack of trial and error, essentially, because government doesn't do enough trial and error. It, it, it's a monopoly. It behaves like a monopoly, I think. Uh, the, on my more optimistic mode in this particular case, uh, Matt has a fabulous chapter where he's describing this new technology, the blockchain, which is a mechanism for trust. Government is, is a third-party trust mechanism. It's not a very good one, but it, it, is, it functions in that way. And this technology could replace really top-down almost all the functions of trust that government does and also enable people to get around government so that government doesn't even know you're doing things. And if they don't know you're doing it, then you're free. Left. Uh, thank you, um, George Mihais. I'm um, a member for UNESCO Task Force, which, uh, among other things, we try to see how culture can uh, influence positively development. Uh, two questions. One, uh, you seem to dismiss or you think it's, uh, we emphasize too much top-down. Uh, how do you explain Singapore's uh, success? Uh, second question, what is your, uh, where is the overlap and the difference between you and uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari uh, book, Sapiens, the uh, brief history of humankind? Uh, what, where is the difference? Where do you agree or disagree? Thank you. Yes, uh, good, both very good questions. Yes, I have to admit Singapore is much more of a top-down place than would be comfortable in my thesis. Hong Kong, I would argue, is much more of a bottom-up place, so we could play Hong Kong versus Singapore. But also I would argue that, quite, that while some things are top-down in Sing Singapore, not everything is. Uh, just like, for example, in China, uh, is a very top-down place superficially, but actually if you go and try and start a business in China, so long as you're on the right side of the Communist Party there's relatively few rules to stop you doing what you want. So in other words, you can have a system that looks top-down from the top but is actually quite free uh, below. I don't know enough about Singapore to know whether it fits that thesis, but I would like to test that hypothesis perhaps to, to excuse myself from your quite right um, uh, uh, suggestion that I might have got that one wrong. Um, uh, as for um, the Sapiens book, um, uh, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've... I've uh, read just uh, bits of it. I think, I think it's a wonderful book. Um, I think he misses the role of trade. I think that's the problem. He misses the role of exchange between individuals and resulting specialization as being the key in the breakout of human beings. Why we went 200,000 years ago from being just um, uh, a clever ape on the savannah to being a technological species. I think it's all about growing a collective brain suddenly through exchange and specialization, and therefore being capable of things that individuals can't understand, back to the knowledge question that Ron was talking about. As a quick side note on Singapore, um, it does score very poorly in terms of democracy and political rights, but for the last two decades, it's been the second freest economy in the world after, after Hong Kong. So there is a lot of um, economic bottom-up. Economic freedom. Economic freedom. freedom. political freedom. That's right. That's correct. Like China. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let's go in front and then we'll get to you. Yeah. Yes. Thinking about artificial intelligence, how does that work in? How can you work it into the discussion? 
there's so much that's loaded about it in terms of being a paradox. My view on artificial intelligence is a little bit sideways because uh, I think that, uh, rather back to the point about collective intelligence on the African savanna, the key to human achievement is collective intelligence, not individual intelligence. There's no, no difference between our brains and those of our 200,000-year-old ancestors, but there is difference between what we do together amongst ourselves. Uh, and I think that's true of computers too. In other words, the real artificial intelligence is the internet. And so I would look at blockchain and things like that as the looming artificial intelligence rather than robots. It doesn't matter how clever a robot how, how clever you make a robot, it's still just an individual, uh, and I'm therefore not bothered about it. Um, and if you like, that's a top-down versus bottom-up way of looking at artificial intelligence. That The, the, the bottom-up version of intelligence is the sort of emergence of things on the internet, whereas the top-down view of artificial intelligence is going off in a lab and trying to design a clever robot, which I don't think is going to get terribly far. I mean, it's going to achieve things, there's no doubt about it, but I don't, I don't feel threatened by it. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, I think most people would react to me saying, well, come on, if you're going to call the internet artificial intelligence, then you're using the wrong terminology or whatever, but I'm, I'm being provocative there. May I have a moment? Uh, as, as someone who hangs around with my transhumanist buddies, we talk about this a lot, um, and one of the things that you could think about it is, 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 is you could have a bottom-up, and they're afraid of this, there would be an intelligence explosion, that, that essentially you could create a sufficiently smart seed computer, a robot, if you would, that could start absorbing the resources of the world to make itself ever smarter and more powerful over time. And that could be a concern to them. In fact, there are whole conferences held on whether or not we should be worried about this. But another way to think about these, uh, these technologies is also that we can make ourselves artificially intelligent, that maybe what will happen is these technologies will migrate into our bodies and our brains, and we will become, if you will, the, the uh, more intelligent cre creatures over time, and our collective will become, if you will, even more integrated than it has been over the, t over the past. Uh, that's my preferred vision of what's likely to happen, but, but it's not a, a completely wrong question to worry about. Fred Michaels? Pat Michaels from Cato. Uh, I have a fear that climate change policy, as opposed to climate change, uh, has the potential to slow this evolution that you speak of. Uh, and the reason I have that fear is because largely it mandates technologies such as solar energy and windmills that will not work uh, and uh, tries to get us away from technologies fossil fuel, et cetera, dense energy, that clearly does work and supports, uh, is, is basically the physics behind the evolution of technological progress. Could either of you disabuse me of my fear? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think I, th I, I would agree with you to the extent that uh, a lot of what we're trying to do in the name of climate change policy is stand athwart uh, an evolutionary system, uh, and that uh, yeah, I, I I personally think that there is a risk that climate change policy could be worse for humanity than climate change, uh, and there's a um, 
there's a quote which I have in the book somewhere from, I found it here, from Christiana Figueres, who's head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, who said that the, the, their goal is to inspire governments, private sector and civil society to make the biggest transformation that's ever been undertaken. And then she goes on to say, the Industrial Revolution was also a transformation, but it wasn't a guided transformation <laughs> from a centralised policy perspective. This is a centralised policy uh, transformation. Now that, to me, tells you everything you want to know about what's wrong with the approach that we're going to see in Paris later this month. That worries you. It does worry me, yes. <laughs> yeah, but, sorry, no, I haven't helped but, you. But you could be cheered up, I'm sure, Pat, by the notion that none of these treaties have ever worked out. Why would you think the Paris Treaty will work? Thank you, <clears throat> Rick. From uh, I have the uh, fifty-three percent government cost crisis blog, and um, there's so much information that people are not getting. Um, just two examples: one on election reform, one on uh, the economy, ranked choice voting, which is discussed every now and then, but the average person has not heard about it. That would pretty much eliminate the need for the two parties. Um, the uh, tax issue on the economy, um, the uh, charge that the wealthy are not paying their fair share has been consistently rejected by the Congressional Budget Office reports. Anyone can Google uh, CBO distribution of taxes on that. So I'm an unaffiliated researcher. I've got information. In top-down DC, there's really no opportunity to do that now. So as far as uh, evolutionary change goes, I'm just putting out the word, if there are any co-panelists out there, I want to try and start my own like monthly forum where either unaffiliated or affiliated researchers can present referenced information to the public. So just send it to me or see me after, after Thank this. Thank you. OK. Here in front. Uh, Michael Walker from the uh, Fraser Institute, um, and an optimistic note uh, about the, the, the level of uh, cultural evolution in a positive direction. The Freedom Index, which we uh, developed with, uh, together with Cato and a variety of other institutes around the world, uh, shows that on a population-weighted basis that the level of human freedom since 1970 has more or less tripled. And so that's a very good and, uh, and, and confirmatory kind of development. On the other hand, I recently read a book by Ni uh, Nicholas Wade, and I'm hoping that you've read it, uh, Lord Ridley. Um, and I, I wonder whether you might comment. I mean, the, 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 the essential theme of the book is that uh, culture uh, does not uh, evolve alone. It evolves with the, the biology. And in fact, Apparently, the, um, the evidence is emerging that you can distinguish cultural groups uh, genetically so that, that the genetics... So, so when we think about, for example, what's happening today with the great migrations of people, uh, you can't help but have some apprehension, if that is really true, that maybe it isn't as easy uh, to, to resolve those issues as simply moving people because the, the, they they are not adapted to the to the culture the, to the cultural um, institutions that underlie freedom and a variety of other things that we all hold dear. I just wonder what your reaction to that book was. I was, I must say, I had a deep cold feeling in the pit of my stomach when I read. It. I, I generally, I, I, by the way, I've read all your books. 
And I just, I, I'm just a huge fan. But I read, when, but the more I'm reading about the the evolution of of, of thinking and and what we're learning about this, the, the more I'm getting this cold feeling in the pit of my stomach. So what what do you what do you make of it? Um, I, I know Nick Wade's book. I, I've written about it, and uh, uh, he, it's got some excellent things in it. I don't really like the book as a whole, but it's got some good stuff in it. So, and, and it makes a very strong case that we are now discovering that there are bigger genetic differences between cultures than we thought. Um, so, for example, Jewish people have probably been under selection to be good with their brains rather than their hands for slightly longer than some other groups, he makes the case. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but it's, a, you know, it's an interesting argument. Um, but... The cr crucial phrase there is than we thought. And it seems to me that this is still a tiny phenomenon compared with the enormous cultural differences that come about because you're Islamic or you're Christian or you're liberal dem liberal dem in a liberal democracy or you're in a communist system or something like that. So I think the cultural differences themselves overwhelm any genetic influences on cultural differences. And another way of putting that is back to this point about the human collective brain. Um, uh, you know, because people have sort of hinted at the reason Africa is economically behind the rest of the world is because it has lower average IQ. That's been said in the past. I think that's absolute nonsense. There's no evidence for it anyway. But even if it was, even if there was a tiny germ of truth in it, what counts is what we do with our brains collectively, not what we do with them individually. Uh, and the way I put that is, a hundred stupid people in a room who are talking to each other will achieve far more than a hundred clever people in a room who don't talk to each other. How can I refuse Fred Smith from CEI? I'd like to have Fred Smith, CEI. I'd like to weigh into the optimism, pessimism part. I'm a despairing optimist, so I split between the two. Um, Hayek, of course, argued that ideas have consequences and evolution has consequences. But Hayek never po pointed out, as you have, that it often has bad consequences. How do we, how do we ensure, how do, what, can, what can be done to improve the likelihood that the consequences, the evolutionary things are better? Is anything. I would argue that in the private sector, Dieter McCloskey made the case that better language, speaking nicely about bourgeois values, allowed the discourse in the private sector to bring scientists and engineers together and created the feedback loops that gave us the scientific revolution. But that same phenomena takes the intellectual class and the political one and gives us a Schumpeter threat that they become the framers, the, the advisors to our collective decisions, and that creates a precautionary principle and everything else. It seems to me we have no idea yet how to address the intellectual class interest of, of statism, of, of anti-technology, and accept competition, which maybe that's it. Maybe we just have to hope for the Chinese. But it seems to me you didn't deal with that. Either of you have dealt with that question. What do we do about the intellectual class interest in stopping progress? Uh, no, you go first. I... <laughs> I, I, well, welcome to a meeting of, 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 of class traders. We're all intellectual class traders here in this particular meeting. Um, no, I, I, I understand, Fred, you're, you're right. There is a problem with how, how you do that and how we get competition uh, going, and that really is the only solution. Uh, I, the, the, the intellectual class uh, has basically endorsed what I were, was calling essentially progressive collectivist values. They are 
primitive people in a certain sense. They think themselves quite brilliant, but what they want to do is, as Hayek brilliantly pointed out, the problem is they wanted to make the family structure the national structure because it's warmer and fuzzier and we don't we all love each other. And they've made a terrible error in that direction, and they end up with the horrors that we see uh, that collectivism regularly uh, uh, put on people. I don't have a good solution to it. If I did, I would be out there trying to market it, but um, let's talk. Well, uh, just two quick points. The, the, the first is that I think one has to bear in mind that evolution has a selection in it, and we are the people who do the selecting. So if we select the good ideas, then the good ideas will win, if you see what I mean. That, that's one of the reasons why the, the good, that's why computer viruses, you know, while they're a problem, don't sort of completely take over the internet, etc. Cybercrime, while it's a problem, is likely to be a, a, a one we can cope with. Um, uh, but the other point on, on uh, the intellectual classes, um, I think it's absolutely vital that... What, what, has, what has made science honest, what has made it capable of defeating confirmation bias uh, and making real intellectual progress has been that it's, it's been decentralised. And so team A has challenged team B. Because you cannot expect scientists, because they're human beings, to challenge themselves. We, they say they do, but they, it's just, you know, they, they are not popperians in the sense that they try and falsify their own theories. Um, uh, and that's what's so shocking, back to Pat Michael's point about the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is that it's coming along and saying, in this particular area of science, we will not tolerate a diversity of views. Everybody must be in the same tent. And I think that's wrong. Uh, one, one other thought, if I may, on this. Perhaps part of the problem is that we... that. Uh, where, where intellectuals congregate are essentially medieval institutions called universities. And uh, is, what we are finding is that that is going to be radically decentralized, that knowledge is going to de, if you will, dethrone the intellectual class as the gatekeepers, and maybe that is actually a very hopeful phenomenon. Yeah, I, I told a joke yesterday, which I, did, I thought everybody knew, but it turned out they didn't, which is, uh, what's the opposite of diversity? University. <laughs> Matt will be available to uh, sign uh, books. Uh, then please join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you all for coming. Can I, just add, yep. can I just add one thing, which is that you should all read Ron's book. It's a fantastic book, The End of Doom. Sorry. Thank you very much.